All right. As we pick up in Ezekiel tonight, we're going to pick up in chapter 40. And as we do so, we're going to enter into the final section of Ezekiel. Chapter 40, all the way to the end of the book, is one unit. In fact, it's one vision. It's the closing vision of the book. In some ways, it is the conclusion or the climax. But before we get started, I just want to remind you of some things that have happened earlier in the book uh, that become significant for our reading this evening. In the very beginning of Ezekiel, Ezekiel, who had been deported to Babylon, along with many of his neighbors, also displaced Jews from Jerusalem, is sitting next to the river, and he has a vision. In fact, what he envisions is God in all of his presence as, as mounted on top of this moving chariot of angelic beings. Um, it's an overwhelming vision, but it's also a head-scratcher. And the reason it's a head-scratcher is because Ezekiel is seeing this in Babylon. The presence of God is in Jerusalem. And so you see this very mobile presence of God. Like I said, it's somewhat of a, of a throne chariot moving on the backs of these cherubim. Um, but we, we start to wonder, what is it doing here in pagan Babylon? As you move through Ezekiel and you get to chapter 8, Ezekiel is transported and visits Jerusalem and the puzzle is solved. Because what he finds is a temple that is actively being desecrated with the worship of other gods in Jerusalem, that temple. And so after he gets this guided tour through the temple standing in Jerusalem and all of the idolatry and pagan worship that's going on in the midst, all of the uncleanness, to use a Levitical phrase, he then sees a vision of that same God-mounted chariot above the temple and departing eastward. And guess what's to the east? Babylon. In other words, it's as if he has a flashback to what's going on. The way that Ezekiel understands what has happened in Jerusalem is that God has abandoned his temple and rendered it open to destruction. Okay. And remember, God has abandoned his temple because as Ezekiel makes his case throughout the book, Israel, specifically Judah, has abandoned him. And so this chariot appears three times in Ezekiel. The two I mentioned at the beginning of the book, surprisingly in Babylon, in removing itself from the temple in Jerusalem in chapters 8, 9, 10, right in that area. And then as we'll see tonight in chapter 43, a return appearance. Okay. What it means is that the, the book of Ezekiel is straddled between two visions of temples. One a desecrated temple of Jerusalem, which is the foundation for Ezekiel's whole message that judgment is coming, that the city will fall, that the temple will be destroyed, that Israel will be displaced. And then where we get tonight, a vision of a future temple. And as we'll see, that future temple will become the residency of God once again. Okay? So, we pick up here in chapter 40, and verse 1 says, In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, 
in the 14th year after the city was struck down on that very day. Okay, so 25 years since Ezekiel and his neighbors have been deported, 14 years since Jerusalem has been destroyed. Now, it's probably too far back for you to remember, but this is significantly moved forward from the last timestamp we encountered in the book. If you will, Ezekiel's prophetic ministry uh, kind of goes quiet for a relatively long season. And then suddenly, in the 25th year since his exile, he has a new vision. Now, commentators like to point out that it may be that that 25th year is significant. And the reason is because the number 25 occurs in a few places in this temple layout, which has plenty of numbers because it's full of measurements. It's a recurring number. Factors of 25, uh, uh, multiples of 25 occur occur over and over. We're going to see that the temple has steps making up three different levels of the temple. Guess how many in total? 25 steps, okay? So the number seems to convey more significance than just this is the day in Ezekiel's journal when he had this vision. What many have suggested, because remember, Ezekiel is a Levitical priest, is that the 25th year takes on significance because it is halfway to the Jubilee. Okay. Now, just, just so you can understand, let's turn to Leviticus 25. Don't, don't let that add to my foil hat, right? The 25 that's added there was added by an editor in the 1500s. But nonetheless, Leviticus 25 deals with the Jubilee. So let's just remind ourselves this evening when it is and what it is. Here in Leviticus chapter 25, after laying out the rule for the Sabbath year. So the Sabbath was a weekly occurrence on the seventh day, but there was also a seventh year Sabbath, which was all year long and was a time to let the crops lay fallow and to trust God's provision. But on the year following the seventh, seventh, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, year 49, there is an extended year off, and that is the year of Jubilee. And so, counting all together, that would be the 50th year. Notice what it says in verse 8. You shall count seven weeks, or literally seven sevens of years, seven times seven, so that the times of seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seven month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout the land and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you in it you will neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines for it is a jubilee It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee, and he shall sell it to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. If the years are few, you shall reduce the price. For it is the number of crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. All right, a little bit of explanation is in order. 
the year of Jubilee only makes sense if you remember that Israel's land didn't function like real estate does in our world. Okay? Because God had given the land and planned to give it as a gift to all of Abraham's descendants and their families, tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, and that was a, a permanent gift. And so what happened was, uh, if there was an economic hardship, if they found themselves in debt to a creditor and were out of things to pay, Jewish people could sell themselves as labor, and they could also sell their land to get them out of debt. But they could not do so permanently. If, if you will, what they would do is sell a, a lease of the land or a contract of the land that at its longest could be 50 years. And so every 50 year there was a reset and any real estate that had shuffled along the way would be returned to the original family. Now this has some beautiful implications one is which uh, it limits generational poverty. Okay? You are not stuck in the poverty of your parents' mistakes or bad misfortune. There's a reset, a restoration. Okay? Um, in the same way, the year of Jubilee also involved uh, a, a setting free of those who were in indentured servitude. Okay? Okay, so when Jesus and Isaiah... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty to the captives. He's announcing a jubilee. He's announcing the, the arrival of this year. Now, as we see here, this is the 50th year, so why would it be significant when Ezekiel brings up the 25th year? What commentators suggest is that the 25th year is when you turn over to being closer to the coming jubilee than the one you already passed. It's, it's like... Um, it's like if you've planned an amazing dinner with your family and you see the bell ring at noon and you're like, all right, now we're approaching dinner. I'm not waiting for the meal before the meal anymore. The next thing I anticipate is the meal itself. In other words, it's almost as if in the timing of this vision, Ezekiel recognizes that the judgment of God is half over. And that's not numerically correct but it is a pivot in expectation, okay? The dust on God's judgment has settled. What is Israel to look for God to do now? Restoration, hope, jubilee, setting free, returning to the land, all of these images. And we'll see the idea of jubilee makes its entrance explicitly into this passage as we go along, but it seems to be even in the timing there, okay? And so, he has this vision, verse 2, in visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. Okay. Now notice here, we have a very high mountain and he doesn't identify it as Jerusalem. Now we know it's a mountain in Israel and we know that it's a city in Israel. He says at the top of the mountain to the south, it's just fully populated. Okay, this is a place where people are living. This is a city. But interestingly enough, he never identifies it as Jerusalem. But he sees this vision here. He sees this high mountain in verse 3. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. 
and he was standing in the gateway. Now, we'll get back to the gateway because the right question asked there is gateway of what? Just a minute. But let's notice this person here. Now, many of the visions in the Bible are mediated or explained or tour guided by an angel. And that will be effectively this angel's role here. He stands here and he's going to take Ezekiel on a guided tour of what he wants to show him. It says here that he has a cord and a measuring reed in his hand. If we were to update the language here, here's how those two things fit together. He has a yardstick and he has a tape measure. Okay? The measuring stick, the reed, is for measuring short distances, okay? like the width of a doorway. It's two reeds wide. The cord, which is marked every reed length over and over for its length, is for measuring long distances, like a football field. Okay? But basically, what he's equipped with here is measuring tools. And interestingly enough, instead of an angel sitting down and just whispering measurements into Ezekiel's ear and saying, all right, well, it's going to be 50 feet by 25 feet, he's actually going to watch this guy read by read, measure out the space and explain it as he goes along. It's amazingly thorough. And it's also visually uh, communicated. Again, it's not instructions. He doesn't hand nor communicate a manual for this building. He gives him a guided tour of it. He walks him through it. And so we're going to see Ezekiel enters in through the great gate and he's going to say, and as we look to the east and as we look to Right, And as we moved through the gate, it's language like this. And so it's a guided tour. Okay. And then we find out what Ezekiel's part is. Verse 4, the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here, why? In order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. So he's to see and to tell. Okay. He is getting this... Um, this tour in the same way that we would do a press release before the public was able to occupy. And so the press would say, oh, you know, we walked into the living room and it looked like this, you know, and they kind of give us the description. That's what he's here to do. Now, what follows is a explanation, measure by measure, of a new temple. Now, there's a couple of things that we should deal with just up front before we even get into the text. And the first one is this. What is the purpose of this vision? Now, if you've read your Bible, you know that the Bible has no problem including lengthy instructions for the building of things like a temple. If you go back to the book of Exodus, you have chapters of descriptions of exactly God's plan for the tabernacle and then infuriatingly to us modern readers, it then walks through the building of the tabernacle and covers all that ground again in all of its thoroughness. Is that what's happening here? Is Ezekiel been being given the plans so that he might, or so that his people, Israel, might execute the building of this temple? There's two things that suggest maybe not. The first is, unlike the tabernacle text in the book of Exodus, Ezekiel and his people are never told to build this temple. It's measured. He's to communicate the measurements, but it's never communicated, you shall build. Now, some go further and they go, actually, the descriptions they're given are so limited here 
There's not enough to build it accurately. I think those people have forgotten how the tabernacle instructions work. Yes, they're very thorough, but not thorough enough to build without creativity and imagination. In fact, you may remember that God appoints Bezael, a man who's filled with the Spirit, who's going to execute God's plan and turn it into life. And his spirit gift, if you will, is creativity and skill of craft. And so it says, and you will carve pomegranates on this surface. It doesn't tell you the diameter of the pomegranates or the shape of them or if they're inlaid or, uh, you know, or um, sticking out. If they're, you know, there's many, many details that are open. It's the same thing here. To be fair, it's not very hard to guess the missing measurements because aesthetically pleasing fills in a lot of the things. Things would be proportionate for the like, okay? So... Could it be built? Yeah. But it is interesting that he's never commanded to build it. Now, second, related to that, remember that Israel eventually does return to Jerusalem, and they do build a new temple. You can read about in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. This is not the temple they built. Okay. The temple that they build in Ezra and Nehemiah is significantly unimpressive and small to the degree that those who were alive before the Babylonian captivity, being merely children, when Jerusalem is destroyed, they remember the temple enough to weep at Ezra and Nehemiah's temple, because it's just not the same. However, this temple is big, and it's beautiful. Okay. So the other question becomes, all right, well, then is this temple not to be taken literally? And many commentators naturally assume that from the things that we've just laid out. Whatever Ezekiel's point and purpose here, it has nothing to do with a time and place temple here on planet Earth. It becomes then instead an encapsulation of Ezekiel's hope for his people or theologically a promise that God will once again dwell with his people. But there is another suggestion and it's the one that I find to be still the most attractive, which is that this temple does have historical significance, but will not be built, will not be built by Israel when they return to the land. In other words, I would suggest that the temple that's envisioned here has something to do with the end times. That the temple that's laid out here is close to the finality of God's plan, but not the new heaven and new earth. We'll see this in the book of Revelation. Something predating that. Something that's going to come to be, but in a very significant way, not because of the actions and intentions of Israel, but because of the return of the Messiah. Okay? Now that leaves, and if you're familiar with the conversations and the other texts, a lot of interesting questions. Do we really envision that if Jesus was ruling and reigning on earth, there would still be animal sacrifices? Do we really envision that, right, all of these questions come in and they become important? None of those are dealt with here in Ezekiel. So let's just focus on the text. All right. One last piece of basic information we find in verse 5. Behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area, and the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six long cubits, each being a cubit and a handbreadth in length. All right. So a cubit is a biblical measurement of length. A long cubit 
is a slightly larger biblical measurement of length. And so if you were to go back to the book of Exodus, uh, or even if you were to go to Genesis and look at the ark, they are both, uh, they both deal with cubits, but that's the normal cubit, okay? Which are, is really easy to remember because it's 18 inches-ish. So a foot and a half. So if you're going to do mental conversion, that's pretty easy. This one is an extra hand breadth, hand breadth, which is four fingers, and so it's actually 20 inches. So all the measurements here are going to be slightly larger than if they were measured in a normal cubit. Okay? But that gives us the guideline both for the cubit measurements of the temple and therefore in our conversion for, uh, for a way to measure it in feet. So the first thing he sees here is that this, this city, in fact, he hasn't really told us what it is. We know it has a gate. We now know it has a wall. As we will see, it's a temple. And that's the first thing he sees. And he sees, um, he sees the height of the wall. He measured the thickness of the wall, one reed. Okay. So how long was the reed again? Six long cubits. And the height, one reed. Okay. So it's a relatively... A uh, relatively short wall, six long cubits, six times 20 inches, okay? Um, and as we will see, it's actually set up in such a way um, that from the inside, it's even shorter. So the wall on the outside is slightly longer. It's set a little bit receded from the first level of the temple. But he sees this wall, and we get kind of the test measurement to get us started here. Verse 6, then he went into the gateway facing east. All right. As we walk through this temple, it's going to be hard for you to envision what's going on because there's so many pieces. Okay. So to help us orient ourselves, let's do two things really quick. The first is recognize that the tabernacle, Solomon's temple, and Ezekiel's temple are all oriented with a eastern entrance and a western entrance holy of holies. Okay. Now we'll see that Ezekiel's temple has entrances on the north and south as well. But if you were to walk in the temple from the east gate and walk all the way to the holy of holies, you would always move west. Okay. Interestingly enough, what do we see in the book of Genesis as we move away from the Garden of Eden? They move to the east, east of Eden, and then even further east into the land of Nod. Okay. And so there's a connection between these things. But the problem is, it's hard for us to envision west, like if I put it to my left here and keep track of it. So instead, I want you to think about west being above my head. That's going to be up as we're thinking, okay? So we're starting here in a gateway by my feet, okay, in the east. And then we find out what it looks like. Verse 6, he went into the gateway facing east, going up its steps, and measured the threshold of the gate, one reed deep. Okay. And the side of the rooms, one reed long, and one reed broad, and the space between the side rooms, five cubits, and the threshold of the gate by the vestibule of the gate at the inner end, one reed. Now already I'm imagining that you're lost. Uh, so let's just lay out what this looks like. He steps into this gateway. It's enclosed in the top and on the sides, but the walls are not smooth like a tunnel. They have vestibules, carvings that are about 20 inches by 20 inches, and on each side of the room, there's five of them, okay? And so imagine a very zoomed-in picture of a zipper. That's what this room looks like, 
And so it's relatively, um, it's relatively rectangular, which we'll see in just a second, but on the inside it has this in and out uh, pattern, and in each one of those vestibules, we're not told that there's furniture or anything, there's a little decoration, we'll get to that in a second, but there is some sort of an opening to the outside world, a window, if you will, okay? Um, and so that's, that's kind of the layout of the gate. And so verse 8, then he measured the vestibule of the gateway on the inside, one read. He measured the vestibule of the gateway, eight cubits, and its jams, two cubits. And the vestibule of the gate was at its inner end. And there were three side rooms on either side of the east gate, and they were of the same size. And the jams on either of, were, of them were the same size. Then he measured the width of the opening of the gateway, ten cubits, and the length of the gateway, 30 cubits, and uh, excuse me, 13 cubits. There was a barrier before the side rooms, one cubit on either side, okay? So we've got this zipper shape, and every vestibule has some sort of barrier, okay? Um, I like to imagine it like a rail, okay? Um, if, have you ever been to a museum, and they have a, a space, a nook, and there's just the, re the red... Um, you know, uh, boundary line. I can't even think of what they're called right now. Yeah, the, the velvet ropes, right, that, that block things off. It seems to be similar, than that, similar to that. So the vestibules don't have obvious and natural access. And also, if you can imagine the flow of the room as you stepped in, these railings would just push you to walk straight through it, okay? Now, already, hopefully you're thinking, why is this so specific if it's just the gate? And we'll come back to that. Okay. Verse 13, then he measured the gate from one ceiling of one side of the room to the ceiling of the other, a breadth of 25 cubits. The openings faced each other like a tunnel. He measured also the vestibule 20 cubits, and around the vestibule of the gateway was the court. In other words, from the outside, these are 50 by 20 feet rooms. On the inside, they zigzag and in out with those one cubit vestibule spaces. Um, but think of this gateway as being 50 feet long okay, and 20 feet wide. Okay. Verse uh, 15. From the front of the gate at the entrance to the front of the inner vestibule was 50 cubits. We covered that. And the gateway had windows. Uh, so actually, I'm sorry, that's the cubit's length is 50 by 20. Um, so it'd be quite a bit bigger in feet. The gateways had windows all around, narrowing inwards towards the side rooms and towards their jams, and likewise, the vestibules had windows all around the inside, and on the jams were palm, tree, palm trees, okay? So there's a minor decoration in here for attractiveness on each one of the jams that go around the vestibule are carved palm trees. Notice it says very strangely in verse 16 that the windows all around narrow inwards. What that probably means is that the windows on the outside were wide and the enclosures of the windows actually came in at an angle. So the hole on the inside was narrow and the hole on the outside was large. Now, if you've ever been to Europe, you've seen windows like this. Not in temples, but in castles. Okay? They're the places where the tour guide always points out to you that the archers could stand and they could see broadly but it'd be hard to shoot into them because they were narrow. In fact, of all the gates we have in the ancient Near East, 
Many of them match this description. This is a common way to design a gate, but not a gate to a temple, a city gate. Okay. So what are the vestibules used for in city gates? These are the places where individual guards stand so that if somebody tries to come through the gate, they're prepared to defend it. The windows allow them to prepare or to defend outward as archers, but if somebody comes through the gate, they're in the wings, you know, and can just swing their swords out at the people trying to run through as they move through it. So now we get to a very natural question. Why in the world does the temple need military-grade security? Now, if you were with us last week, we found Israel in the future surrounded by Gog and seven armies from seven nations. And if you remember, God didn't need any help from Israel winning that fight. So the issue here is not, not one of security. It's not one of a threat of violence or physical attack. But the imagery is still one of preservation of protection. We'll come back to that. So he comes through the gate now and he's brought into what's called the outer court, verse 17. He brought me into the outer court and behold, there were chambers and a pavement all around the court. 30 chambers faced the pavement and the pavement ran alongside of the gates corresponding to the length of the gates. This was the lower pavement. Now, we have to give Ezekiel some patience here. Did you notice he mentioned gates, plural? He hasn't told us about those gates yet. He's going to fill in that information. And it's one of the hardest things about envisioning what's going on here is sometimes we have things that are referenced that haven't been explained yet. So let me just put uh, into perspective what we're going to see here. He comes through this gate and he sees an open courtyard and he's going to see a couple of things. First off, he'll see two more gates, one exactly center of this courtyard to the south and one exactly center of this courtyard to the north. Okay? But to the west, as we'll see, he'll see another raised platform with another set of steps and actually another gate. Okay? And so the outward court that we're looking at here is U-shaped with a raised center that fills in the space between the U that we have yet to explore yet. And in the U-shape, each wall of the U has a gate in its center. All of them exactly the same. Okay. And he also tells us here that the courtyard from gate to gate is 170 feet. Okay. So if he walks out of this gate into the courtyard, he walks another 170 feet and he'll walk into the second level of gates. Okay. But he also stops here to describe the north gate and the south gate that I mentioned, verse 20. As for the gate that faced towards the north belonging to the outer court, he measured its length and its breadth, its side rooms, three on either side, and its jams and its vestibule were the same size as the first gate. Its length was also 50 cubits and its breadth 25. And its windows, its vestibules, its palm trees were the same size as the gate that faced the east. And by seven steps, people would go up to it and find the vestibule before them. And opposite the gate on the north, as on the east, was a gate to the inner court. And he measured from the gate to the gate 100 cubits, 170 feet again, okay? So to the north is a gate just like the one we just walked through. And directly across from that gate is a gate just like the one leading up to the second tier of this temple, okay? And so on our U, if you want to think about this again, 
there are gates that are parallel to one another, two on the east, two on the north, and two on the south, and between these gates is this big U-shaped patio. And then verse 24, the south gate. And he led me towards the south, and behold, there was a gate in the south, and he measured its jams and its festivals, and they had the same size as the others. Both it and its festivals had windows all around, like the windows of the other. Its length was 50 cubits, and its breadth 25 cubits, and there were seven steps leading up to it, and its vestibule was before them, and the palm trees on the jams on either side, and there was a gate on the south of the inner court, and he measured from the gate towards the south, and I bet you can guess how long it was, 100 cubits. Okay. Now, already as this is taking shape, we're noticing something interesting. And here's what it is. There is no western gate. There is no western inner gate. Okay? Just gates on the north, south, and east. We'll see if, why there's no gate in the west in a minute, but just keep that in mind. So then, verse 28, he brought me to the inner court through the south gate, okay? So if we walked into the temple, he walks through a gate into the outer court, and then he walks straight forward into another gate, the south gate into the inner court. It was the same size as the others. Its side rooms, its jams, and its vestibules were the same size as the other. Both its vestibules had windows all around, and its length was 50 cubits, and its breadth was 25 cubits, and there were vestibules all around, 25 cubits long, and five cubits broad. Its vestibules faced the outer court, and the palm trees were on its jams, and its stairway had eight steps, okay? So the inner gate is exactly the same, except it takes one more step to get up, okay? And so notice, as we're moving into the temple, we're also moving higher. First, we take seven steps to get up to the gate that goes into the first court. And as we take those steps, as I reminded you, we start to clear the wall that we saw in the beginning. So by the time you get on the inside, the wall from the outside has shrunk down quite a bit. And so if you were standing in the uh, outer court looking east, you would easily see over the wall. But if you were standing at the front of the eastern gate looking north, or excuse me, looking west, you wouldn't be able to see in. Okay? So what we're going to see then is this inner court, verse 32. Then he brought me to the inner court on the east side, and he measured the gate, and it was the same size as the others. Its side rooms, its jams, its vestibule were on the same size as the others. Both its vestibules had windows all around. Its length was 50 cubits, and its breadth 25 cubits. Its vestibules faced the outer court, and its palm trees on its jam on either side, and stairway had eight steps. Then he brought me to the north gate and measured it. It was the same size as the others, and we'll skip the review. So... Again, northeast, south, gates exactly the same, all with eight steps. Now, finally, we get something new. Verse 38, there was a chamber with its door in the vestibule of the gate where the burnt offering was to be washed. Now, notice there was nothing in the outer court except for just some storage rooms. We kind of skipped over that, but maybe you noticed. He sees, he sees big rooms flanking the walls from gate to gate all the way around the outer court, but they're just empty. We're not told what they're for. Most likely, they're meeting rooms. You may remember that the church in the book of Acts meets at the temple in Jerusalem, and their meeting place is a specific part of the temple called Solomon's Portico. Okay? The portico is basically a big open collection of halls 
uh, that have pillars to divide them, and in some places walls, but most of it doesn't have a roof. But they're effectively meeting halls. Remember that one of the ways the temple was used in the Old Testament was for the fellowship offering. And how a fellowship offering would work is that you would come and you would bring your animal, and not only would some of it be sacrificed on the altar, and not only would some of it be eaten by the priests, but the majority of it would be given back to you and you would have a feast with your friends. Okay? It was reflecting on the fact, um, and it really is the pinnacle of Jewish worship, to have fellowship with God and with one another, to borrow the language of 1 John. Okay? And so where did these people eat? In these storage rooms in the outer court. But the ones we're reading about here in the inner court are different. It says this is the place where the burnt offering was to be washed. Okay, the burnt offering was another sacrifice. This one was wholly consumed in the fire after its offensive organs had been removed and its skin. Everything else went up in flames. Okay? This burnt offering is another significant part of Jewish worship, but it required a clean sacrifice, both cleaning on the outside as well as cleaning on the inside like when you clean a fish. Certain organs had to be removed before it could be offered. So notice the difference. The outer court is for who? Average Jews to meet. The inner court is for who? The priests for what it takes to do the sacrifices. Okay. Verse 39, And in the vestibule of the gate were two tables on either side on which the burnt offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering were to be slaughtered. And off to the side and outside, one goes up to the entrance of the north gate where there's two tables, and to the other side of the vestibule of the gate were two tables. Four tables were on either side of the gate, eight tables on which to slaughter. And so along the gate are these rooms. Each one is set up with a table to wash and slaughter um, the animals for sacrifice. I would suggest to you the idea we should get from this is that it's equipped for a large amount of people. Okay? If you go back to the tabernacle, there was really just one place for the washing. By the time you get to Solomon's temple, which is much, sick, uh, much larger, you have the bronze laver, and it's very big. It's a whole collection of places to wash. It's made for a larger group of people. In the same way here, um, this is set up for many offerings. Not only are the tables there, but notice here, verse 42, and there were on the four tables of hewn stone, for the burnt offering, a cubit and a half long and a cubit and a half broad. Okay, so they're not very big, just big enough for the slaughter. And one cubit high on which the instruments were to be laid and which the burnt offerings and the sacrifices were slaughtered. And the hooks, a handbreadth long, were fastened all around within and on the tables of the flesh of the offering was to be laid. In other words, it's set up with all the tools the priests need for cleaning and for sacrifice. Some of them are sitting on the tables, some of them are hung on the walls around the room. Now, have you noticed yet what's missing from the temple? There's a table for sacrifices. There's tools for the sacrifices. There's room for people to meet in. There's room for the priests, but there's no people. He's seeing here an empty and not yet in use temple. He sees no sacrifices, just the place where it's all going to go down. In other words, the temple he's seeing here is not yet open for business. Okay. Verse 44, on the outside of the inner gateway, there were two chambers in the inner court, one at the side of the north gate facing south, 
the other at the side of the south gate facing north. And he said to me, this chamber that faces the south is for the priests who have charge of the temple, and the chamber that faces the north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok, who alone among the sons of Levi may come near to the Lord to minister to him. Okay, two things here. First, like I said earlier, the outer court rooms were for the meeting of people. The inner court rooms are only for the priests. Okay. In fact, we find out that this inner court has no access to non-Levites. Okay. Now, we didn't mention this because Ezekiel doesn't mention it. But whereas when you come through the first gate, there's a wall around the whole temple. When you come through the inner gate, there's no mention of a wall. Now, some commentators think it doesn't need to be mentioned because it would be part of the symmetry of the temple. But I would suggest that's not the case. The point of this next area is to be publicly visible, but not publicly accessible. And so as you come up these eight steps and go through the gates and get to the inner court, you're only eight steps and some change higher than the outer court. You know, so imagine it's built about chest level. So you can see everything. In fact, we're going to find out that the altar where the sacrifices are given are even higher than that. And so from anywhere in the temple, you can see the altar. But to get to the inner court, you have to come through the gate. And as we see here, the only people allowed through the gate are Levites, priests. Okay. Second, notice here it makes a distinction between your generic Levite and the sons of Zadok. In fact, notice what it says. It says, verse 45, This chamber that faces the south is for the priests who have charge of the temple, and the one that faces the north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. And he says, These are the sons of Zadok, who alone among the sons of Lema may come near the Lord to minister to him. So we have two job descriptions. One takes care of just the temple generically. Okay? Um, think of a maitre d' or a host. Okay? They're the ones that handle the booking. They're the ones that are out in the midst of the people. They're the ones that are showing people to their rooms. They're the ones who probably clean and take care of the instruments of the temple. But this other group of priests, they're the ones who do the sacrifices. They're the ones who carry the blood from the sacrifice into the temple itself. And it says here that, that Levites generic can't touch the altar. And as we'll see, Levites generic can't go into the temple, only those of the line of Zadok. Now, if you, if you remember, the line of the high priest was Aaron, right? It was the line of Aaron of the high priest, and the high priest did have special security clearance, right? One day a year on the Day of Atonement, he would walk all the way into, protected by incense and smoke, the Holy of Holies, but here we have no mention of Aaron's line. We just have a mention of the line of Zadok. And at the moment we're going, what, who? Right? And we'll deal with them next week because it will return and, and a, um, a reasoning will be given for, for this distinction here. But I want you to notice that we're already seeing tiers of access. All Jewish people, outer court. Only Levites, inner court. And then when we get to the temple itself, only the priests from the line of Zadok. Okay. All right, so verse 48, then he brought me to the vestibule of the temple 
and measured the jams of the vestibule five cubits on either side, and the breadth of the gate was 14 cubits, and the sight walls of the gate were three cubits on either side. The length of the vestibule was 20 cubits, and the breadth 12 cubits, and people would go up it by 10 steps. Okay. When it says vestibule here, I want you to think of the tabernacle proper. I want you to think of the temple proper. I want you to think of the holy place and the most holy place. Okay. So notice here, if we start outside the temple on the east again, we come through one gate into the outer court. We keep walking west and we come through another gate into the inner court. We keep walking west and we walk up 10 steps this time and we enter the vestibule, which is basically the foyer of the temple. Okay. So notice a few things. One, again, we've ascended a little bit higher. And so if, as I said, you could see the priests going about their business in the inner court, how much more could you see the entrance to the temple itself from anywhere in the temple precincts, okay? Second, every time we go up steps in the temple, we go up more steps than we did the last time. So it's seven, seven steps to the outer court gate, it's eight steps to the inner court gate, and it's 10 steps to the Kent temple entrance, okay? And side note, when you add those steps together, it's 25 steps, like the 25 years in the beginning. But what's more important is, even though the gates are the same, the steps are different. Every time you go higher, you go, forgive me the bad English, more higher than you did the last time. Okay. All of this is pointing in the same direction of the access. Who can get in? Okay. What we're seeing here is a tiered system of holiness. An escalation, like I said, of security clearance. And that's built into the geography of the temple itself. The second thing I want you to notice is at the very end of verse 49 there, it says there were pillars besides the jam on either side. And so as you get to the entrance of the temple, there are two pillars and, a, and presumably you walk through them into the entrance of the temple. Now, why does that matter? Actually, there's, there is an answer but the answer leaves us with another question. The reason there are two pillars at the entrance is because there were two pillars at the entrance of Solomon's temple. As I mentioned earlier, the difference between the tabernacle, this portable tent of worship that Israel was given heavenly plans for, and the temple that Solomon built is significant. Okay? He does not just take the dimensions of the tabernacle and recreate them in physical walls instead of fabric. He completely reorients and reorganizes and reimagines every element of the temple. It's bigger, it's grander, it's more involved. And one of the things he does is he makes two bronze pillars and he sets them up at the entrance of the temple. In fact, he even names them. We won't take the time to turn there tonight. It's hard enough to keep track of the facts where we are. But if you're interested, you can read about them in 1 Kings chapter 7, verses 15 and following. But that's probably what these pillars are for here. But when we ask the question, what were they for in Solomon's temple? We don't know. They were decorative, clearly. They probably had some sort of significance, but it's not explicitly stated. It does function, however as a very tangible, visible opening to the temple itself. 
That's where we get next is the temple itself in verse 1 of chapter 41. Then he brought me to the nave and measured the jams. Okay. I want you to think about three different areas in this temple. We've already met the vestibule, and I'll give you the measurements for that in a little bit. Now we're in the nave. In the tabernacle, this would be the holy place. Okay. It's the place where the, um, the bread of the presence was laid upon the table. It's the place where the lamp stand, the golden lamp stand would have been set up. And at the end of it is this, this veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. When we read here about the nave, that's the area we're reading about. And so he says, he measured the jams on each side, six cubits was the breadth of the jams and the breadth of the entrance was 10 cubits and the side walls of the entrance were five cubits on either side and he measured the length of the nave, 40 cubits and its breadth, 20 cubits. Then he went into the inner room and measured the jams of the entrance, two cubits, and the entrance, six cubits, and the side wall on either side of the entrance, seven cubits. And he measured the length of the room, 20 cubits, and its breadth, 20 cubits across the nave. And he said to me, this is the most holy place. Now it's easy to miss something very significant here. I want to hit it again. Look at verse three. Then he went into the inner room and measured. Who? The angel. Ezekiel does not. He's left waiting in the nave, and he's not invited into this last room because, as the angel says, this is the most holy place. Okay. So he only sees the measurement from the nave. Now, let's wrap our head around the dimensions of the temple here. We've got three separate sections. Okay. Starting in the very east, we have the vestibule, and it's a 12-foot by, t uh, let's see, I gotta make sure I get my measurements right here. It's 20 feet wide and 12 feet deep. Okay. And then the entrance by those two pillars, we're told that it is 14 feet in diameter, okay? Both, both this way and high. As you walk into the nave, the nave is 40 by 20, so it's a long rectangle, okay? And then we hit another gate um, as we walk through and it's 10 feet square. Okay. So the entrance to the vestibule is 14 feet. The entrance to the holy place or the nave is 10 feet. And then at the other wall is a six foot by six foot door, much smaller. And behind that is the holy place, which is a perfect square, 20 feet by 20 feet. Okay. So just a few things. One, the dimensions of this are just like the tabernacle. Okay. The proportions are exactly the same a proportionate rectangle where the length is double the width followed by a perfect square where the width and the length are match. Okay. And so it's laid out in the same way and what we have here in the Holy of Holies is as far west as you can head, right? Here our journey, if you just walk a straight line into the Holy of Holies, comes to a stop. And as we'll see, that doesn't get us to the end of the temple but we'll come back to that. Then he measured the wall of the temple six cubits thick. Now think of that. Remember how much a cubit is? 20 inches? Six cubits thick are the walls on this temple. Okay, and so from the internal measurements that we already have, there is 180 inches of just solid, I'm gonna say concrete, clearly it's probably not concrete. That's another thing that's interesting about this temple. We're not told the building materials ever, okay, with a few exceptions. 
But nonetheless, very thick walls. Okay? And so in the same way that the gates were these kind of high security access points that were designed to be well defended, the temple itself is insulated from the outside world, like if you were trying to soundproof it, but even well beyond that. Okay? Very thick walls here. Verse 6, And the side chambers were in three stories over one another, thirty in each story. These were offset all around the wall of the temple to serve as support for the side chambers, so that they should not be supported by the wall of the temple. All right, now we get into one of the hardest things to wrap your head around, and it's mostly because not all commentators agree. But what we're finding out here is that, remember, the temple is higher than the inner court. Along the walls of the temple, on both sides, north and south, are a whole bunch of rooms stacked in three stories. Okay? And we're also told here that these rooms don't actually share a wall with the temple. There's a buffer of empty space okay, between them. Now, we're not going to be told for these, uh, for these rooms uh, what they're used for, except for the fact that they're called storage rooms. And one of the things that you need to remember is that the temple in practice, and even the tabernacle, involved a good deal of goods, okay, in a couple of different forms. One, there are the uh, gifts that are given through tithes for the priests while they are serving, the Levites were not paid in a paycheck. They were paid in goods and food, primarily, in this case, while they were serving. And so all those gifts that the priests would eat were stored on site at the temple and consumed on site at the temple. So that's some of the storage. Another thing that was brought is the offerings, not just for the Levites, um, which could also be in money, but also an offering every three years for the poor that was redistributed during the feast so that everybody could join in the feast and nobody could say, I can't afford to feast with the rest of Israel today. And so there would have been monetary storage in these places. And then there would have been just the treasures, right? Um, all of the ancient temples of the world had artifacts and treasures from beneficiaries who just wanted to beautify uh, or worship by giving something big and beautiful and sacrificial. These storage would have been used for it too. The most important point for us is what it mentions here, that it did not touch the temple walls. Okay? So let me point this out. As you get into the inner court, there isn't a way for you, at least a sanctioned way, to touch the wall of the temple. Okay? Instead, there's this space and then wrapping around in front of this space are these storage units. Okay? And so again, there's a distancing or a preservation of space. There is a limitation of contamination okay? by rooms and distance. Now, the hardest part to understand about this, and this is where commentators really struggle, and it's mostly because the Hebrew here gets really complex. There must be some way to access all three stories of this storage room, first floor, second floor, third floor. But how that actually works out, it's just hard to understand if we've got it right in English. And you'll see this, it says in, uh, in verse six, halfway through, there were offsets all around the wall of the temple to serve as supports for the side chambers so that they should not be supported by the wall of the temple. And it became broader as it wound upward to the side chambers 
because the temple was enclosed upward all around the temple. Thus the temple had a broad area upward. So one went up from the lowest story to the top story through the middle story. Okay, so two things. One, there seems to be a ramp that moves through the storage and maybe multiple ramps that gets you up from one story to another. Second, it says here that the story on the top is wider than the story beneath it, which is wider than the story beneath it, okay? And so I want you to think, if you will, of, of a box, and then in front of the box is two pillars, and set on that is a box that goes all the way to the edge of those pillars. And then we repeat it again, so what you have is an upside-down staircase. As you look at the side of the building, it goes further out. Okay. What that means is, by the time you get up to the airspace around the temple, you're even further away than you were when you were beneath it on the ground level. Okay. But again, the Hebrew here is very complicated, and because we're dealing with um, construction notes, it's just not very often used words. We can't find a lot of um, you know, notes that architects in ancient Hebrew left behind for us to compare. Verse 8, I also saw that the temple had a raised platform all around the foundation of the side chambers, measured a full reed of six long cubits. The thickness of the outer wall of the side chambers was five cubits, so even these walls are very thick, and the free space between the side chambers of the temple and the other chamber was a breadth of 20 cubits all around the temple on every side. So that airspace I told you between these buildings is pretty large. 20 cubits on every side, keeping distance. And so there's no access to this space. It's just empty space in the design between the storage and the temple itself. 11, and the doors of the side chambers opened on the free space, one door towards the north and another towards the south, and the breadth of the free spaces was five cubits all around. The building that was facing the separate yard on the west side was 70 cubits broad, and the wall of the building was five cubits thick all around, and its length, 90 cubits. All right, so notice where this building is on the west side. So where is it? It's directly behind the Holy of Holies. And as we'll see, it goes all the way to the wall of the temple, okay? And so there is no way to access the back wall of the Holy of Holies. Now, if you go to Israel today, you can go to the Wailing Wall, which is also known as the Western Wall. And the reason why that wall has been chosen as a place of significance and prayer to the Jews is because it's as close as they can get to the western edge of the Temple Mount, where the Holy of Holies would have been, okay? But in, in Ezekiel's design, there's basically just this restricted zone behind the Holy of Holies that goes all the way of the wall to the temple, okay? And so again, there's no gate on the west side, but there's also just this big buffer to keep the temple away from the western wall, okay? Again, think of this spatially. Imagine that you are um, a Jew who is in a state of uncleanness all the way back in the tabernacle in the wilderness, if you live on the west side of the camp, you can see the back of the tabernacle, and on the other side of that curtain is the most holy place on earth. Okay. Here in Ezekiel's temple, there's a significant distance to people who live on the other side of the temple wall. As we will see a brief reference to, I don't remember if it's this week or next week, it may even be 
Because when the kings of Israel in the temple that was destroyed in Jerusalem were building, they built tremendously close to that and had all sorts of pagan worship going on in their private chambers right next to the place of God's presence. And so instead, there's this big negative space. Verse 13, then he measured the temple 100 cubits long and the yard and the building with its walls 100 cubits long and the breadth of the east front of the temple of the yard 100 cubits. In other words, this third plateau where the temple is built is a perfect square, 100 cubits by 100 cubits. Verse 15, then he measured the length of the building facing the yard. It was at its back and its galleries on either side, 100 cubits. The inside of the nave and the vestibule of the court, the thresholds, the narrow windows, the galleries, all around the three of them opposite the threshold were paneled with wood all around from the floor up to the windows. Now the windows were covered to the space above the door, even to the inner room and on the outside. So the holy place, the vestibule, inside and outside, this whole uh, temple is paneled in wood. Okay. And so that's the first time we get reference to a building, um, uh, a, a building material, and what we see is the temple is paneled in wood. Verse 18, on this wood, it was carved of cherubim and palm trees, a palm tree between two cherub, a cherub and a cherub. Every cherub has two faces. Okay, so palm tree, cherub, palm tree, cherub along the way. Okay, and then it says the cherubs had two faces. Now, if you remember, when Ezekiel sees the cherubs in the beginning, how many faces do they have? Four. Why do they have two faces here? Because it's a two-dimensional picture. Okay, and so if you were to look at these angels, they had four faces, but to see them, you would have had to walk all the way circumscribing them to see all four. And so here we only see two of them, but clearly they're representative of the cherubim that we saw in Ezekiel. And again, these pictures, if you will, these and pomegranates we find on the temple and even woven into the fabric of the tabernacle. This is the standardized imagery of Israel's worship And again, there seems to be a reference to the Garden of Eden. Trees and fruit and flaming angels, right? When we think of the Garden of Eden, that's what we think of, and we see the same thing here. All right. Let's see where we are here. Uh, And there was a canopy of wood in front of the vestibule outside, and there were narrow windows and palm trees on either side of the side walls, the vestibule, and the side chambers of the temple and the canopies. Okay. So we see the temple. It's very beautiful. It's engraved. Um, We know that it sits on a perfect square of land, even though it is a long rectangle with the Holy of Holies. Behind it is this empty space, restricted area building, Um, To the sides of it is storage. And then he leads us back to the outer court towards the north. And he brought me to the chambers, verse 1, that were opposite the separate yard and opposite the building on the north. The length of the buildings whose doors faced north was 100 cubits, and the breadth 50 cubits, facing the 20 cubits that belonged to the inner court, and facing the pavement that belonged to the outer court was a gallery. And against the gallery was three stories. 
So we're taken all the way out again, and that original storage from the outer court is described in further detail. And we see also that it's broken into smaller sections. Like Solomon's portico, it's laid out as a gallery. And before the chambers, verse 4, was a passage inward 10 cubit wide and 100 cubits long, and their doors were on the north. Now the upper chambers were narrower from the galleries and took more away from them than the lower and middle chambers of the building. In other words... Unlike the ones by the temple that go outward as you go upward, these ones more naturally go inward. The rooms higher are smaller because part of the ground is needed as the pathway that walks in front of them. Think of the storage unit buildings that we have all over Seattle and imagine that they didn't have, you know, the steel structures that we have for buildings and so instead they were terraced. And so the hallway of floor one um, would be built on ground level, but the hallway of floor two would be built up top of the units, okay? And of floor three would be built on top of those units. And so we have a terraced selection of rooms, and that means that there's access by paths that come up to them along the way, okay? Um, verse six, for they were there in three stories, and they had no pillars like the pillars of the courts, Thus the upper chambers were set back from the ground more than the lower one. Unlike the pillars we saw in the inner courts, these ones don't need them. Verse 7, there was a wall outside parallel to the chambers towards the outer court opposite the chambers, 50 cubits long. For the chambers on the outer courts were 50 cubits long, while those opposite the nave were 100 cubits long. Below these chambers was an entrance on the east side as one enters from the outer court. Now is a good time to recognize two things. One tremendously detailed picture of this temple, right? No measurement left behind. Every hallway is measured. Every room is numbered. All sorts of details, okay? Two, when we put this all together, we have a significantly large temple, not so much in its footprint. We'll, only, we'll see that the whole temple, including the outer court, is only 500 by 500 cubits, okay? So it's not massive, but it's made to be heavily used for a lot of different purposes all at once. It envisions a very popular site. Okay? When Abraham builds an altar at the foot of the tree in Mamre, all the way back in Genesis, it's just a little thing because it's just for Abraham. But Ezekiel's temple is made for a significantly large crowd of regular activity. It envisions a people who worship God. Okay? And it compares very closely to Solomon's temple in size. It's different in a few different places. It compares very closely. And remember, Solomon is kind of the pinnacle of, of Israel's stability. Uh, at that point, all 12 tribes are flocking to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. Right? Here, Ezekiel envisions a return, if you will, to that level of worship. All right, a few more things here in chapter 42, and then we get to the good stuff. In the thickness of the wall of the court on the south, also opposite the yard and opposite the building, there were chambers with a passage in front of them. They were similar to the chambers on the north, the same length and breadth, and the same exits, arrangement of the doors, and the entrances of the chamber on the south. There was an entrance at the beginning of the passage, the passage before the corresponding wall on the east one enters them. Then he said to me, the north chamber and the south chamber opposite the yard are holy chambers, where the priests who approach the Lord shall eat the most holy offerings 
There they shall put the most holy offerings, the grain offerings, the sin offering, and the guilt offering for the place is holy. Okay, now pause. These chambers, again, are in the outer court. So here's what I want you to envision. This is the place where the priests who meet with God through the sacrifice meet with the people. And so what these rooms are, are the place where these two worlds of different tiered holiness collide. In fact, we're going to see that some of these rooms are set up like locker rooms for the priests, where they can change from their common everyday clothes into the clothes of service, which are holy. Okay? In fact, we'll find that every time they come in and out of the gates of the temple, from the inner to the outer, they change out of their clothes. Okay? It's an ordeal to worship here. But here is where they meet with the people and receive their gifts. Okay. Verse 14, when the priests enter the holy place, they shall not go out of it into the outer court without laying their garments in which they minister, for these are holy. They shall put on their garments before they go near that to, to that which is for the people. In other words, these rooms have direct tunnel access to the inner courts. The priests don't travel through the gates, uh, uh, sorry, that's, that's inaccurate. I'm getting confused. Um, but the point is they change their garments before they head through the gates. Verse 15, now when he had finished measuring the interior of the temple area, he led me out to the gate that faced east. And he measured the temple area all around. He measured the east side with the measuring reed 500 cubits by the measuring reed all around. He measured the north side 500 cubits by the measuring reed all around. He measured the south side 500 cubits by the measuring reed. Then he turned to the west side and guess what? 500 cubits by the measuring reed. He measured on its four side. It had a wall around it 500 cubits long and 500 cubits broad to make a separation between the holy and the common. Okay, so this is 815 feet squared. That's the whole temple precincts inside the wall, outer court, inner court, and temple. Not a very big footprint, okay? Now, the second thing I want to point out, because somehow we missed it in our reading, but sitting all the way back in the temple itself is one wood table. And I don't actually know why we missed it. I must have just skipped it in a verse. That would be the table of showbread. The only other thing we'll see in, in Ezekiel's temple is the altar. And what's interesting is when you look at the measurements of the altar, which are in the inner court, right, where the priests operate, it actually ends up being the geographical center of this 500 feet by 500 feet square. Which I just think is really interesting because if we were to design a temple that had a circulation of holiness and a defense of it, we'd put the Holy of Holies in the center. But that's not how this is designed. At the very center of this 500 by 500 foot square is the altar. And I think that's significant because the altar is the center of Israel's worship. The sacrifice is the most important part, okay? And there is no access to the Holy of Holies apart from that sacrifice. And so it's the focal point. And so we've seen the whole vision here now very quickly again. If you start by my feet through the east gate, you come into a U-shaped outer court, and on my right hand and on my left hand would be two outer gates, and then in front of us is a raised area accessible by an east, north, and south gate. And in the middle of that is a raised area that goes up to the temple all the way to the west. Okay. Now, what's interesting is when we wind forward to the book of Revelation, 
and we go to Revelation 21, to the new heavens and the new earth, we can tell that John has read Ezekiel. What I mean is when he describes what he's seeing in Revelation, he describes it with Ezekiel in mind. And so it's interesting to read here in Revelation 21 and notice what's the same and notice what's different. Look with me here, the very end of our Bibles. Verse 9, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, just like Ezekiel, and showed me a holy city, Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, at the gates of 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Side note, if you're counting, that's twice the gates in Ezekiel's temple. On the east, three gates instead of one. On the north, three gates instead of one. On the south, three gates instead of one. And on the west, three gates. Huh, western gates. Verse 14, in the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. Now a stadia is a lot bigger, okay? It's about 1,380 miles, okay? This 12,000 stadia, okay? A stadion, that's the singular, is about 600 feet or 185 meters, okay? So he measures this place, and it is, again, 1,300 and change miles, its length and width and height, okay? Try and wrap your head around that, okay? This city is as high as it is wide as it is long. You are familiar with the mile-high city. This is the 1,380-mile-high city, okay? Now, what's also interesting is as he goes on, he also measured its wall 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also angel's measurement, how convenient. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was of pure gold, clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl. Side note, these, these stones are so many that we actually run out of English words to translate um, because we're always approximating old jewels because we can't see old jewels, right? We can only go, well, this word means green, so it's probably like our emerald. But translators run out of words to translate with because this thing is so precious and so diverse. Okay, and then I want you to notice verse 22 because here's where he diverges from Ezekiel. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the lamp is the Lamb. Now here's what I want to point out to you. Here, there's no temple because the new Jerusalem itself has become the temple. Right? The Holy of Holies was the place where God's presence 
dwelt. And because of that, it required holiness and preservation. And so Ezekiel envisions a temple, and that temple is extensively protected against contamination. In other words, it's not just a replacement temple for the one that was destroyed. It's one that implies and points to one that is protected from contamination and destruction again. Okay? But by the time we get to Ezekiel, all those barriers, or sorry, by the time we get to Revelation, all those barriers have been removed. Now, God dwells in the city of Jerusalem, and Jesus dwells in the city of Jerusalem, and he walks all 1,380 uh, 80 uh, miles cubed of it with his people. In fact, there is a cube in the tabernacle. There is a cube in the temple. The Holy of Holies is not just 20 feet by 20 feet. It's 20 feet by 20 feet by 20 feet. And so it's as if in John's vision, the Holy of Holies has expanded and ex- ex- includes all of the people of God. It's an amazing vision. But I think you'd have to agree with me that what Ezekiel sees moves in that direction, but doesn't achieve what God speaks of there. And that's why, again, I would suggest to you that this incredibly detailed vision Ezekiel has is not plans for the Jews when they return, but a vision of a temple that will be, a temple that will be designed, perhaps, when Jesus returns, and part of this process that leads to the final and full of Revelation 21. Now, just to close out the night, I want to just read a little bit further in chapter 43, and then we'll end. Okay, so again, Ezekiel sees this vision. He knows the temple. He sees the advantage of it. He sees the holiness, but it is still unoccupied, and not just by the Jews. That holy of holies was empty. And so, verse 1, he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, In this place you should read facing Babylon. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I'd seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision I'd seen by the Chabar Canal. And I fell on my face. And so he sees this divine chariot. And this time it's returning to Jerusalem. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne. This is the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their whoring and by their dead bodies of their kings at their high places, by the setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts besides my doorposts. Remember how thick the walls are? Remember that empty space? Now there's distance. With only a wall between me and them, they have defiled my holy name by their abominations they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now... Let them put away their whoring and their dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. Okay. And so God envisions and projects a vision of hope to Ezekiel, and he says, I will return. I will dwell in the midst of my people, and what went wrong will not go wrong again 
but I will be present and Israel will be holy. Verse 10, as for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and they shall measure the plan. So why are these measurements given? Not so that Israel may build, but so that Israel may mourn. So that they will see the carelessness of their history. So that they will recognize how hard it is for God to dwell with a people like them, as well as recognizing God's gracious activity that he still desires and will accomplish his dwelling with them. And verse 11, if they are ashamed of all they have done, Make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits, its entrances, that is, its whole design. And make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws. And write it down inside of it so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple. You know what that word law is? It's Torah. What follows, as we'll see next week, is the Torah of the temple. Effectively, what we see is a beginning, a fresh start on the covenant. And because it's a new temple, it comes with a new Torah. It comes with a new law. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on top of the mountain, all around should be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple, which we will get into next week. Let's pray. Father, I pray also that we would be humbled by just that determined intention expressed in action throughout history that you would dwell with mankind. God, that's what you built us for in the Garden of Eden. You created us on the sixth day, but you created us for the seventh, that we may rest and dwell and worship you. And we lost that in the garden, and the way back was barred. And then as we move forward, Lord, we see mankind moving eastward, but your commitment and your promises maintain. And even when we get to Sinai and God comes and we get the difficulty of God dwelling on earth with a people like us, a mediator is chosen, boundaries are set, don't go up the mountain, keep your distance for God is holy. And Moses is offered the land and Moses is offered a future he says, I'm too holy to go with you, Moses. You'll die if we go. And he says, what is there to live for if you don't come with us? Even the promised land is not good enough to be a new Eden unless it's the place where God dwells. And so you give them the tabernacle, a, a living Mount Sinai, where the presence of God heads among its people. And it's that that they defile and desecrate with their sin. It's that that they turn away from as they turn to the gods of others. It's that that eventually is destroyed and Jerusalem is scattered, but even then you were committed and you were devoted. And so when we get to the New Testament, and it tells us in John chapter 1 that the very word of God who was God tabernacled among us. And we find the presence of God in all of his holiness, not contaminated by the sins or the sickness of others, but but a contagious holiness that spreads and makes clean what was unclean. A sacrifice consumed on the cross, wholly dedicated like the whole offer, bearing our sin and guilt like the guilt offering. God, that is your commitment 
to overcome the distance that we have created so that you would dwell with us. And we know, Lord, that you dwell with us in our Holy Spirit, and one day we will dwell with you. One day from the new heavens and the new earth will come down the new Jerusalem, and there will be no temple because God and the Lamb will dwell in the midst of his people. We thank you for that. We praise you for it. We pray that we would respond as you told Israel to respond and that even tonight we would be holy for you are holy. But we would do it, Lord, for your presence, not for our preservation or protection, Lord, that we would do it so that we may be with you because if we say we walk in the light but live in the darkness, we have no fellowship with God. We praise you tonight for your word. We ask that you'd continue to impress these things into our heart, that it wouldn't be the measurements of the temple of Ezekiel that stick in our minds, Lord, but the devotion of the God who will bring this temple to pass. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good night.